everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey, hello everyone. Thank you so much for being a part of this uh, webinar with us today. today. Happy Earth Day, first of all. And I think we're going to have a better person or a better uh, organization to know more about on this day. Uh, first, I think we will get into that. But first thing first, like if you guys are listening to me, like just put some ones in the chat box in the question area. And if you cannot, please uh, write that down in the chat area too and Mark will try to help you technically. Uh, other than that, please, uh, in the chat box, let us know that where you are from, like where you're joining us from. I can see Alicia is there. So thank you, Alicia, for joining. She's our regular, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so she's there, and she has been, I think, on all, not all, not all, but 80% of them. So yeah, I'm truly grateful for that. So put us, put some ones, put some, uh, your areas where you're from, and we'll get this started. So first of all, uh, hello, Elliot. How are you? Hi, Arib. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here today. Uh, I'm excited for just a good kind of open conversation, uh, share from myself and also our organization. And, and I think you kicked it off right by saying this is a wonderful way to celebrate Earth Day. Uh, we should no doubt be doing, uh, I think, protecting the planet all the time. But it's a good to take a step back and, and focus on one day in particular and say, this is what we got to get to do. So uh, anyways, thanks for having me. No, it's an honor, truly really an honor. I was going through your website. I think I will be showing that around in the, in the background, basically. Uh, again, I, I already told you, well done. I think it's really informative and you guys are truly doing a great job. I think Aaron is the person who kind of, these people have the heart of gold. So <laughs> I was like, really? And then I kind of looked at it and then I was just amazing and it was truly impressive. So it's truly an honor. Um, so please introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from, what circumstances you grew up in and what led you to be where you are today. Sure. Uh, happy to. So uh, Elliot Powell, obviously, as kind of mentioned at the outset or any of the ads leading everybody here, but uh, I'm currently sitting in the position as executive director of Sustainable Harvest International. And we'll get into, I guess, all of the organization, what we do and, and who we are later on in the conversation. Um, but yeah, that's my current role, and I've been in it for the past three and a half years. Uh, I've been with the organization for seven, previously as the director of international programs. Um, I am originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, which is obviously in the middle of the United States, but for folks that might not be too familiar, um, it's in the Midwest, uh, three hours outside of, uh, of Chicago. And I grew up, uh, kind of, I guess you could say your normal uh, upbringing, middle class, um, kind of suburban neighborhood, uh, but with a really wonderful family and uh, really supportive and always encouraging us, my sister and I, to, to continue learning, to go out exploring, to, they always, you know, kind of supported us in our travels and asking good questions and 
wondering where life might take us. We always felt super supported in that way. And I guess I mentioned that because it's been, uh, I guess, kind of a curvy path getting to where I am now. Um, and, but it's been really exciting. I, you know, kind of fast forward, I, I studied environmental sciences, environmental management in undergrad. I stayed close to that, uh, but then um, it wasn't really, so I, I always had this kind of connection with, uh, with the environment of kind of understanding how things work from an ecosystem approach, you know, kind of the larger movements in an ecosystem and how things are related. I find that really fascinating. I mean, even to this day, uh, and, and not just honestly in the environment, but just how an organization might work or how a business might function. I, I, I really like understanding that big picture of where things are fitting in together. And uh, just with the environment, it's it's always fascinated me from playing around in the woods when I was a kid to being able to to engage now as uh, as as an executive director with my work where you know I'm just constantly inspired by uh, families that work with us and that go for these big transformation transformational changes in their lives and so uh, I took that and, and I guess kind of ran with it um, and I joined the Peace Corps as uh, the United States Peace Corps, as a volunteer, as an environmental environmental education volunteer. And I would say that's probably a big, you know, one of my big kind of career or professional milestones that set me off. It was the first time I found myself thinking I could do something more with a career, uh, not necessarily in the Peace Corps, but um, working uh, in a kind of a community setup where community development issues were talked about where i could work kind of in partnership with families and in partnership with community members and and then i fell in love with the region of central america specifically i was living in and or working in in nicaragua and that was just eye-opening for me uh, I traveled just a little bit before then, so to actually get a bunch of good experience outside of the United States, which which is so important uh, for for any um, just to get that additional perspective and understand that uh, there's other ways to go about life and there's other ways to define success and and define your path forward. So at any rate, that opened up my eyes a lot. And and I actually I kind of left after two and a half years with the Peace Corps with a lot more questions for for me and in in what I could how I could continue to work in some sort of similar capacity um, at an international stage or an international setting on community development issues, and then even more you know what what's the role of of these organizations you know is there a role like uh, there's a really interesting and oftentimes troubling history of international development and especially coming you know it can be from coming from the united states and so i just i my head was swirling when i left and i i i, I really enjoyed it though and so i thought i'm going to go back to the united states and i'll i'll figure out kind of what's next and i got hooked up with a, a big international ngo uh working in water and sanitation um I wasn't doing anything on the programming side. It was much more behind the scenes, kind of understanding how an, uh, an international NGO works. So fundraising, administration, data management, like everything, it's a big machine, you know, it's not just all, it's not just all programming. And that's really what I was excited about. But I think it was, that helps me kind of get a more comprehensive understanding about how this work uh, is carried forward. And so I, Spent a couple of years there, but I knew I always wanted to kind of go on, and I was always interested in 
studying more. So I got a graduate degree, I applied and, and, and was fortunate to go to a, a good school in New Orleans, Louisiana called Tulane University. And they have a center for essentially Latin American studies. And that's where I was able to take all this stuff I was kind of asking myself and asking others along with some practical experience and apply it to a graduate level degree. Um, I always had my kind of sights on the, the horizon of getting back involved with an international NGO of some sort, uh, the programming side. I'm really interested in program design, implementation, evaluation, and, and things like that. And so um, that all started to kind of work together. And I had you know different spheres of my life happening, overlapping with each other after I graduated from, from uh, my graduate school and uh, had this big kind of environmental component. Uh, then I had uh, the social side of things, of just kind of uh, mobilizing people and understanding agency a little bit more and how people group together around this change that they wanna see. And then the regional side of it, so Latin America and specifically Central America. And I happened to cross Sustainable Harvest International. And I guess you could say, the rest is history <laughs> to, to a certain degree. Um, seven years, seven years. That's a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> That's long. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I was like, um, I think we will go to the questions in, of the organization later on, but I have one real quick because when I was doing this, um, I can easily say Sustainable Harvest International, but when it comes to the acronym SHI, so it is she shy uh, SHI, what do you guys call it? Like, uh i like to i'll move to shi after i say sustainable harvest international maybe my first time just to put it out there but sustainable harvest international can be a mouthful and so uh i'm often especially in situations like this long conversations shi is is a little bit easier to to manage so feel free to use shi SHI. yeah initially when i was doing the research i was like how to call this she i think no it cannot be called she <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. SHI, SHI, perfect. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, I will have a little more questions about you, basically. Yeah. So you just explained me, highly impressive, your journey, all of that. So who are some of your heroes, like most influential people in your like, life, which kind of help you channel into this passion, basically? There are always a role model. There is always a hero, which kind of who you look to and then say, because it's difficult for, I think, uh, in my own experience, difficult to follow passion when yeah. different things are going around. But I kind of could use people, who, those people who kind of do that. Yeah. So looking at you is really impressive. Yeah. So who are some of the viewers? Great question. Um, and you know, I don't necessarily have any like celebrities or anybody like that that I've always you know followed or, or looked up to and. Honestly, I like I said at the outset, I would have to say my folks, my parents. I've always looked up to them in terms of uh just their 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 support that they provided me in allowing me to to explore, allowing me to 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 fail and to kind of encouraging me to get back up or to, you know, when everything looked confusing, like what do I want to do next or um always felt like there were opportunities before me ahead of me and i totally put that um into or from my parents uh that helped significantly 
just to kind of whittle down, continue to whittle down this path that I'm on. And by no means have I got it all figured out by any means right now. Um, but it's, I think in large part, it's, it's because of them. They, they provided a safe space, a, a really warm and welcoming space to, to learn and to grow and to explore. Um, I'll say that it's kind of pushed me to where I am now. And to this day, they still offer wonderful support. And that's fantastic. And I think I'm really fortunate for that. Um, but, you know, kind of more towards the, the direction of this conversation, I am always inspired. And I consider the families that we work with and these individual farmers uh, as no doubt role models. And their stories are unbelievably inspiring um, to really be in kind of survival situations and to to dig in deep and to make transformational changes to own that to choose that is inspiring and I you know I'm fortunate to travel a bit with my work and I come back just totally rejuvenated from the experiences and from the conversations I have with individual farmers and I know we'll get into that in a little bit but I'm fortunate I guess where I have this strong kind of upbringing and then I'm able to recharge it throughout my career, recharge it a couple times a year as I travel and and get to sit down and talk to people that are that are going through big changes and that are up against their backs might be up against the wall. And, and I find so much inspiration in that. So a beautiful answer, I would say. So a few more questions. Um, I was reading through the website and I went through your profile and it said that you are the barrier, like you are the bridge, basically, between the field and the headquarters. I hope and a bridge is not a barrier, yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry, a bridge, sorry, not a barrier, sorry, bridge. Yeah, and then I was reading, like, you have a lot of costumes for some reason. <laughs> so, you and your daughter have a lot of costumes. So, tell us, like, tell us something about your family, like, how many yeah. kids you have, and uh, what, okay. what's the story behind the costumes, a lot of costumes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we might not even have enough time on this on this conversation to cover it all. But uh, no, so I, uh, I'm a family man. I have a wonderful wife and two beautiful chi uh, children, um, two daughters, Layla and Tessney. And we live, and I, I think I mentioned it at the outset, we live in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, so after I came here for grad work, we ended up staying in and New Orleans is a really wonderful, beautiful city, and it embraces this, uh, the kind of the colorful aspects of life like no other place I've ever been. And kind of right front and center of that is Carnival or Mardi Gras, and wow. which is a big celebration of, of life and of, of dance, of food, of culture, of music. Um, and, you know, it's obviously connected with kind of a loosely with a religious or a religion. And um, at any rate, there's lots of time for party and lots of time for festivals and lots of time for parades and, and costumes. And, you know, between us as a family and our community of friends and, and family members, we're able to build up over the years a really awesome costume collection and it's the moment where you can just like put on whoever you want to be and you get to put it on and you get to dance in the streets and you get to um and it's not out of control it can be out of control if you want it but it also can be very family for friendly you know and it can be anything that you want to make it but it's this big celebration and uh we're fortunate to to live in this place where you don't even have to look for it it comes and finds you you know and there's just people in costumes left and right and <laughs> I, just a quick story. We have we have lots of costumes, like I mentioned. It's a big. We have a 
the girls have chests full of costumes and they're always running around the house with different some sort of something on to the point where like it doesn't phase you or if you were to come and visit um, and we might have some sort of outfit on for a parade or something, it's totally normal. The girls don't actually question it at all. If I might look like a pirate one day, they would just be like, all right, what's for dinner type of thing. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't grow up like this at all. And so I am just, I guess, kind of riding that wonderful wave of, of carnival and, and Mardi Gras culture. And um, and it's, it's not just that. There's, a, there's kind of a seasons for for all these different things here in in new orleans but that's very much where that closet of costumes comes from you have a lot of closets right now i guess <laughs> a lot of costumes <laughs> i will take on this because my daughter is like eight months old uh mm. and my only daughter yeah <laughs> and i can well imagine myself and her doing costume parties and doing something like that hey, so i will take this on you yeah and i i think i look forward to that it's a good idea because we don't have a lot of carnivals here going around, but I love costumes. Mm. So when I go outside the country and yeah, I, I enjoy a lot of costume parties. <laughs> Look, Irene, for think. next time you're in, you find yourself in the States, you're always welcome here. We can, I'll introduce you to some good Mardi Gras fun. Oh, so kind of you. So much. <laughs> okay. Uh, and yeah. Okay. Last one from my side and then we can jump to your presentation. Uh, what is the new tool you have? recently kind of learned or obtained that you recommend it can be a digital tool it can be a physical one which you think like wow oh this is new and this is really handy basically so this tool. is a question something yeah tool a new tool basically it can be digital i found something like recently which was quite mind-boggling for me and people are doing that but that's web 3.0 the it's something called uh, funny beers or some funny beer i guess so it's nft and stuff like that but i'm like okay the world is going to a different direction but a new tool basically for you oh man that's a tough question uh i don't have anything that's just like i'm trying to think i honestly i've been using a shovel a lot right now and i know it's a really lame answer or not an interesting answer answer i'm trying trying to be a good gardener. I'm trying to build up a garden outside of my house. And uh, I find myself, it's like my, where I go to meditate a bit and, um, you know, kind of late at night or on the weekends or whatever. And I find myself, honestly, I'm on a screen all the time. And so with work that I gravitate, I think my like, subconscious, I kind of gravitate towards physical tools now um, because I'm otherwise in front of a screen a lot. And no doubt there's cool tools online or digital tools you know but go to webinar a new tool for you basically <laughs> yeah basically i yeah go to meeting was a new tool for me i'm used to zoom so this is actually that's a great answer go to meeting is my new digital yeah, I, I think i will email you the story behind it <laughs> really kind of ask wayne to do it but for some reason he doesn't like zoom so i think it's about the capacity of people because at one time this is a 1,000 people kind of a, a software, like 1,000 people can join. Okay. And the number the number is always tricky. Like it, the number is never correct because people can join through cell phones. People can join through like call numbers and they're listening to it. So we have this ability on Zoom. I think it's quite less. Maybe yeah. that's the reason. Yeah, there's one more reason, but I will email about you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think uh, I think that's how we will Oh, it's further due. I will we'll jump into your presentation and uh, and we can take one from there. So I'm giving you the screen from here. Okay, let's know about your organization, SHI. 
S-H-I, that's right. So I'm just going to set this up for a second here. And I will stop my like camera. So it's only you and your presentation. Show this window. Again, my first time using GoToMeeting. Just can you clarify or let me know if you're yes, seeing? I can, okay. I can see your screen with, yeah, the right one. Okay, the right one, thanks. Yeah. Um, well, thanks, Arib, for that great introduction. Um, and I, uh, so what I have planned here for 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 you and for the rest of this conversation before we kind of get into uh, the Q and A, is to share more about Sustainable Harvest International or SHI. Uh, you know, kind of who we are, what we do, and 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 where we sit in the world of of this type of work. Um, I find it like I mentioned in the beginning. I'm. You know, I've been here for seven years. It's a really wonderful organization. We're definitely a small, on the smaller end of things as an international environmental organization. But I honestly believe, and I kind of, I always talk about how much impact that you're able to see when um, visiting SHI supported farms or being with uh, our program staff in Belize, for example, or something along those lines. So um, I think the 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 footprint that we create is really it's a you know kind of deep impact but really bigger than the actual size of the organization. Uh, so I'll get into that here today, and um, basically I'll share kind of you know what the problem is, uh, you know why we think regenerative agriculture and smallholder farmers are an important solution to climate change and to climate crisis. And then I'll dive into SHI as an organization and our 25 years of experience in creating uh, essentially climate leaders for the for the generations to come. Uh, so um, we are, I kind of just mentioned that, and you can see here on this first screen, we're currently celebrating our 25th anniversary as an organization. My close colleague, Florence Reed, founded SHI 25 years ago and has been a part of the organization ever since. Uh, and that's that's unique for an organization, but it's also, I think, uh, really exciting to still have a founder close by and, and very much part of the work. Uh, so um, we are a, uh, like I mentioned, we have 25 years of experience uh, focused in Central America, uh, and we work directly with and in partnership with smallholder farmers to conserve the environment, protect the environment through regenerative agriculture and ecosystem restoration. Uh, and when I say smallholder farmer, I just wanna kind of clarify that from the beginning that what I'm talking about is uh, subsistence level farming. Um, you know, the FAO defines uh, smallholder as two hectares or less, I believe. Um, and that's right in line with SHI farms, just to kind of put that picture, that context in folks' mind. Um, these are subsistence level farmers that are uh, you know, working really hard at times, struggling to produce the food for their own kitchen table, and not necessarily part of some other kind of supply chain or anything like that. Um, so, and, and we exist in this area because we feel like SHI can have the biggest impact. Um, a quick second about the organization: we're based in the United States. We have a team, um, kind of five to eight individuals, depending on kind of full time or, or contract uh, workers. Um, but we're distributed 100% remote. Like I mentioned, I'm in, in New Orleans, and then we have some folks in uh, Maine, uh, Florida, Georgia. So we're all over the place. And um, 
And then we have our programmatic operations. So these are also SHI staff, but this is uh, these are our program our program staff. Uh, these are trained agronomists, trained leaders, program managers, and they and we have operations in Belize, Honduras, and Panama. And uh, my kind of quick math is we have 23 or 24 staff across Central America right now, um, and they are. You know, we kind of everything we do here in the United States is in support of that work from administrative to strategic planning to communications and marketing is really so we can push our work forward and work with more farming families across Central America. Um, so I mentioned kind of at the outset what I was going to do. So just to talk about and kind of uh, forefront or foreground the issue where SHI exists, um, I think this is a really important place to start. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, so for many of the world's smallholder farmers, the 500 million smallholder farmers out there across the globe, this is a really common, and especially in the case of SHI, this is a really common uh, narrative where um, kind of environmental degradation uh, and rural poverty are so interlinked. And so uh, typically, or I, I'd say generally speaking, in the, in the experience of SHI, a lot of farmers that we work with are um, using lots of conventional agriculture. So heavy use of agrochemicals, uh, and maybe in the case of some of them, um, an over-reliance in kind of heavily populated areas of slash and burn farming. Uh, and that really just leads to this, this kind of uh, degraded landscape where topsoil is being uh, just completely uh, kind of ripped of its nutrients. And, and it's no longer producing like it would normally. Uh, and so there's an over-reliance then of agrochemicals and kind of going back and forth with this. And then once that piece of land dries up or is no longer producing the yields that's needed, someone might go to the next plot of land or jump a fence into a, into a national park and, and continue to, to farm there. And so uh, that can spin out of control, as you can imagine. And so these decreased yields lead to this kind of climate crisis. Uh, for the for the context of SHI, and results are very real in the sense of hunger, of poverty, of not knowing where the next meal comes from, or not having a balanced diet. So maybe you're just producing corn, and you're doing everything you can to just get enough corn uh, to eat and maybe to sell. Um, but all any sort of income, any sort of extra profit that you might have, is immediately put back into producing, trying to produce a yield for next year. And that's a, that's a really vicious cycle. And so uh, that oftentimes leaves families uh, and community members to make really difficult choices to migrate, to, to leave these communities that they've been a part of for generations, or leave their kids behind while they go look for a better opportunity. And, um, and that's a really common story for many of the farmers that we work with or that start off before they start off working with us. And so um, and that's, you know, that's a, nobody wants to make that. Nobody's making these choices on a, because they want to go on a vacation. It's because it's a survival. It's, it's, they need to, you know, find a better opportunity to be able to come back and support their family. And so that uh, just does, it's not only really harsh on the, the environmental landscape or the natural landscape, it's really, really tough on, you know, for the social side of things with families. And so, um, uh, and so SHI has kind of found a place here in this, in this web of uh, what can oftentimes be like a web of, of linked uh, problems that just kind of keep going and building on themselves. And, uh, but we also see these same smallholder farmers as 
a really productive solution for climate change. Um, you know, using regenerative agriculture techniques, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but these smallholders small also represent such an important part of, of, of our ability as a human race to, to reverse climate change. Now, granted, there's lots of solutions out there, some more technical, some less technical, and kind of from SHI and the work that we do, it's much less technical. It's working, it's it's farming. It's working with the land to produce food in a in a more sustainable and healthy fashion for people and the planet. Um, you know, there's this incredible statistic that always pauses or stops me in my tracks that smallholders worldwide provide food for up to 80% of the global population. So when you think of that and the power that's behind that, of all of these smallholders that are operating on two, five, six, whatever acres of land, uh, add that up, and 80% of the of the global population of the food is being provided for. And so you think, well, these are really agents of change. This is really a unique opportunity to 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 shift the climate crisis in the right direction. Uh, and so, like it's we show here, you know, there's a potential to reverse up to 40%, but just by working through the global food system itself. So the way that we produce food, if we can kind of get that right and change that into a much more uh, environmentally friendly, uh, but also do do right by the farmer, allow them to be able to choose and produce what they want to choose and produce. Um, there's a there's significant potential uh, for for reversing some of these negative effects of climate change. I'll also note that you know when we work with farmers, agroforestry is it plays a really big role in 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 what we promote. So the idea of kind of combining in the most loose general sense, combining agriculture and, and forestry. So working with nature to integrate species, integrate crops, to build up soil health and 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 keep the ground covered and, and provide spaces for habitat. That's all part of this kind of agroforestry approach. Uh, and so with all of that being said, SHI is here. SHI kind of operates in this nexus of environmental degradation and rural poverty. And in our experience, uh, with farmers that we partner with, and it's been over, you know, over 3,000 in these past 25 years, the vast majority of them will embrace the opportunity. Excuse me, will embrace this opportunity to restore their lands if given if given that that chance. Um, most of these rural communities are often not even seen on maps, quite literally, not even seen on maps, or um, they're overlooked by kind of national or, or, or even local government uh, initiatives or campaigns. And so um, they jump at the chance in our experience to uh, take up new technical expertise um, or, you know, kind of a push in the right direction um, based off of where they're working with their field trainers and, and things of that nature. And so we really see that the solution is is with these families and and stewarding the land in a in um, in an environmentally friendly way as the solution as one potential solution for climate crisis. Um, you know, I'm often asked, well, what is it that SHI does? And I would say that SHI empowers people; it transforms lives of smallholder farmers in a positive direction. Uh, it creates agency for farmers to kind of take that control of of where they want to be planting, what they want to be doing, and and see uh, what's possible, uh, as opposed to kind of that reactive approach of just always being behind on, let's say, a debt or um, or a particular agrochemical that you would need to have your your corn grow, whatever it is. Um, uh, 
uh, SHI also creates resilient communities. And that's something that we have seen more than ever since the start of the pandemic. Uh, we've, you know, there's obviously a, uh, we like to think that, you know, these communities are now, you know, have a resiliency for climate change or food insecurity, things of that nature. But when the pandemic started, kind of March of 2020, at least for the United States and here in Central America or in Central America, there was immediately like, what are we going to do as an organization? But what are these families going to do? How, how are people going to eat? How are people going to feed their families? Because these the food systems that we are seeing and the chains of how things were connected were instantly broken down and instantly kind of put under a microscope is what's not working. And so, um, you know, wondering how this was going to happen, but we started getting, we were, you know, flooded with pictures and videos from participant family farmers or participant farmers, excuse me, and their family members saying, hey, you know, things are okay, even though, like, for example, in Honduras, where there was a 100% lockdown, there was nobody was moving, transportation, public transportation was locked down, and nobody was moving for weeks on end, the markets were closed. So what are people to do that might otherwise rely on the market for the food? So we were getting these videos of a farm tour, essentially saying, hey, we're doing okay, thanks to this training, thanks to this farm, this beautiful kind of array of crops and diversified, even income stream that we have, we're doing all right. And so for SHI, that meant, you know, we've been doing this for 25 years and there were lots of other organizations and companies. And I really tip my hat to them for needing to be nimble and to be, you know, pivot quickly to, to stay alive, keep their doors open, keep staff on, provide the services that they do. And maybe they change their model overnight. But for SHI, <clears throat> thanks to these thanks to our farmers, you know, they were saying this is working. This is what we're, we're able to build resiliency here. And that was so powerful as an organization. We said, we don't need to change. We need to double down. We need to do this more. Um, and, you know, of course, there's like little, you know, we might not have to, we might not, we weren't able to actually have, you know, as much one-on-one you know, -on -one contact, right? Or group settings were, were totally illegal at one point during the pandemic. But it meant that uh, the kind of our model was really helping and really building up these levels of resiliency. So that's kind of my quick answers for, for what it is that we do. Um, now, moving forward, it's kind of like the how now. So how do we do this work? How have we been successful? How have we been kind of created ourselves as regional leaders across Central America in these past 25 years? And a lot of it has to do with our methodology and, and how we engage and partner with farmers and their families. Um, we've been developing this model of long-term technical assistance. And I'll get into the details of that here on the next slide. But um, with, with farmers. And so essentially farmers are, are choosing to participate with us and engaging on what is a structured approach over the long term uh, and, and ending in kind of a formal graduation process of, of being you know, climate stewards and climate leaders and, and stewards of their land. Um, and I mentioned that it's agroforestry plays a big part of it. You know, we really see it as not only Agroforestry not only kind of uh, brings in biodiversity or attracts biodiversity, sequesters carbon, <clears throat> excuse me, um, improves soil health, but also, you know, in addition to these really strong and important technical and, and kind of scientific aspects of agroforestry, it also creates a lot of new opportunities for farmers and it creates uh, diversified income streams that people had not, you know, been exposed to or had, had at their uh, at their fingertips. And so we see that a lot as being really important 
component as well is well the livelihood aspect of this so it's great the environmental the social components the health components of it but also the more we can kind of fold in the livelihood aspect of making this um of putting more money in people's pocket giving them more opportunities to make choices on on what they're doing with their time and how they're providing for their family and their grandkids that makes it all the more sustainable. So that livelihood, and I think that's an important component for this conversation because we're talking about kind of uh, that angle of, of, of livelihoods plus taking care of the planet. Um, so just to dive in a little bit more in depth uh, about what our actually our multi-year approach looks like, you know, we have it broken down into five phases. You'll see that we kind of love the number five here at SHI uh, in the, follows in the other in the next slide as well but this is a multi-year approach so it's roughly four to five years long um, and a partnering family uh, will go through from phase one through phase five you know kind of everything's done successfully and they they're, they're, they've seen this transformational change and then there's a big graduation at the end I won't go into too much details of these phases because they get really detailed quickly um, but I just to touch on uh, each one individually, there's a lot of, for the organization, it's really important that we invest a lot of time and energy at the forefront of uh, selecting, you know, kind of operating in the regions that we operate in. It's all very intentional to, uh, to promote as much impact as possible from our work and for the lives of the families we partner with. And then, you know, from there, there's a lot of work in community selection. So talking to community leaders, talking to local government officials to see, you know, where might SHI fit in here? And also who wants us there? That's extremely important kind of in this work and any sort of community development work, international development work is, is the buy-in, is the local buy-in. Um, making sure there's, you know, an identified need from communities, not from an outside institution, uh, and then them essentially selecting or, or choosing that they would want to partner with us. And that translates right into phase one, which is family selection. So we'll quite literally give a presentation. We're invited to present in a really kind of neutral site, like a community center in a rural community. And we'll say who we are and what we do and explain responsibilities. And it's very much shared. And so there's lots of questions about that where some families might have seen maybe kind of a government handout before or something, you know, kind of similar or a really short term project, a six month project, and then it's gone. There's a lot more to SHI. And so we want to be clear when we're when we're having that. So well, then we'll go one by one and talking with families that have shown interest of working with us and and explain this is a long haul you know we're here to be partners and and it's a technical knowledge exchange it's not a handout organization uh and then uh families will self-select so they will say yes that sounds great to me that's what i want for my family that's what i want for my farm and that right there that's a real key component of kind of ensuring sustainability that somebody will stick with the program that they're gonna keep going years after we leave is that they're signing up for it it's not shi saying you you and you do this um, and it also helps that uh, all of our staff across the region, across Central America, are all local. So local culture, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, local language. So and they're from the area. They're just trained agronomists, but they understand what people are going through. They, uh, you know, being a field extension agent is really tough. And it's not just technical stuff. It's you're a, a psychologist. You're maybe a nurse one day. You're everything to this family. Um, that might otherwise not have access to similar services. And so that relationship starts in phase one. 
and then I'll just one more thing for phase one and then we can kind of move on. But it's important that uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the family is a part of the design of where they're going to go with, with the program. And it's super individualized. So a field trainer will sit down with a family and say, all right, what do we have here? And the family will draw, literally draw on a map what they have, you know, picture or it's a colorful picture. And they'll say, this is what I have. But then the next phase is, is just so important is, is drawing where they want to go. So it becomes essentially two farm plans. You have one where you are and then you have one where you're going. And that serves as essentially a, 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 an informal contract, a roadmap of sorts that you can constantly go back to and say, hey, what was it that we wanted to do next? Or, uh, you know, I, my plans have changed. How is this new cart going to fit in? And that, again, keeps up with the levels of sustainability. And it's just super important to, to always kind of be mindful of that. Phases two, three, and four are introductions and then kind of deeper dives into the details around environmental stewardship, of reforestation efforts, of integrated regenerative agriculture techniques, of, you know, terrace farming with live and dead barriers and do this here and not there, <clears throat> but really getting into the, 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 the weeds, so to speak, of that, uh, building up real secure levels of uh, food access, of health and nutrition in the family. And then, um, for some of these families, they find interest in maybe possibly selling some of this surplus after they've established this strong level of food security and food sovereignty, taking that control or having that control. Some show interest in in selling commercialization of their products. And that's really interesting because it's like a just continued development. And and SHI is very much there to support that in, in however we can, you know, to a certain extent. We're not uh, loan officers or anything like that at a microfinance institution, but we're very much there to, you know, kind of share in the structures of what does it like bookkeeping look like for your own finances if you want to sell the surplus of platinum that you have, or if you are interested in making more uh, biofertilizers that you could sell to your neighbors and, and things like that. And there's just there's hundreds of stories exactly of those those examples that I mentioned. Um, and then that goes into phase five of uh, which is really short. Essentially, it's a um, it's community leadership. It's a graduation. It's a formal graduation. There's a party. We didn't have, unfortunately, great parties during um, uh, great celebrations during the pandemic just because of kind of local laws and restrictions of group gatherings, but it's uh, a really earned and important recognition of this transformational journey that these families are on. And it's also recognition that the institution is stepping away and moving back from that kind of, you know, really constant presence. And, you know, I've spoken at these before, I've attended lots of graduations and spoken with farmers, and this is really kind of we always talk about how this is the really important part because this is where it becomes SHI is gone and it's working in partnership with your neighbors and, and making sure that it continues on in that way. Um, briefly here, and then we'll get into some more interesting examples, but I think it's important to show that, you know, this is a holistic approach that happens over this, this multi-year technical assistance program. We have agroforestry, which we've talked about, but other areas of impact are the environment, food sovereignty, livelihood. And capacity building is kind of sit, uh, set aside here as a, as a fifth area of impact. But to be quite honest, that's happening all along. I mean, as we're 
as there's leadership development classes or just attending group workshops and kind of taking this on and sharing with your own neighbors on your own, not necessarily with your field trainer, that's really what this is about. And so these five area of impacts, the importance here is that it's holistic. The importance here is that it's it's not just a direct technology. It's not just one thing. Uh, every one of these kind of work in tandem together and they only add to the uh, potential for transformational change and they only add to the levels of kind of like the, the sustainability, the, the likelihood that this stuff will, that these new techniques will stick and that these changes will take root. Um, and that's all that SHI is about, is, is ensuring that we're kind of working across this broad spectrum of community development and but as an as an environmental organization, but it, you know when you're working with families, it's not there's everything's interconnected. Um, and then on the left, I just threw in there's uh, some key statistics that we've had over this 25 years of experience. But you know we've worked with more than 3,000 families. Uh, we've planted over four million trees as part of agroforestry settings, as part of reforestation campaigns, as protection of water sources, those types of things. And then down here. Uh, 20, over 26,000 acres uh, then uh, restored uh, from degraded lands. The next three slides are brief snapshots just to give folks an idea of what some of the projects look like. Uh, even a picture here is Felipe Marin in Belize. Belize, we work in the northern uh, area in the two districts of Corozal and Orange Walk. For years, we were in the southern part of the country. Uh, but now with some exciting partnerships, we're actually um, in talks of having a more national approach. At any rate, you can see farming families. We work a lot with establishing kitchen gardens, kind of right outside a home. We have a really strong uh, wood conserving stove project. So these are clean cook stoves that greatly reduce the number of, or, or the amount of firewood that needs to be collected. Not to mention, um, it's much healthier. The number of toxins in the in the room and, and connected rooms is, you know, vastly reduced because of these wood conserving stoves. And these are models that SHI has developed over years. Um, and then some other trees planted and acres regenerated. I'd mentioned that we worked in Siwat or in Honduras, I should say. Siwatepeque is in the center of the country, and that's our office there. But we're in, uh, at this point, 13 communities actively around Siwatepeque. Uh, but in, in active families at the moment is right around 200 that are in the currently participating in our in our uh, uh, technical assistance program. So, um, but kitchen gardens again, these stoves, and and you can see just the level of the amount of 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 trees that have been planted. And these are real kind of output numbers I recognize, but you know the outcomes here is what we're talking about: is our landscapes transformed, or our lives changed essentially. Uh, and soils improved and big diversified crop selection. That's really what we're talking about. Uh, and then finally, Panama is our third core program country. Here's Alberto Rivera standing proudly, and I'll actually talk about him in, a, in two slides from now. But in Panama, we operate just west of Panama City, about two and a half hours in the province of Cocle. And uh, currently in eight, um, uh, communities all about an hour or so outside of Panonome, which is where the headquarters is. Uh, but Albert, Alberto Rivera is a recent graduate, actually, and uh, he's got a really wonderful story that I'll share here in a second. Um, but this has been um, really a, kind of one of our champion programs, along with Belize and Honduras, and, and pushing what we're doing as an organization. 
just to take a step back, I mentioned or there was a photo, a quick photo of Edis holding uh, one of her babies in, in Honduras. Um, I wanted to uh, highlight the livelihood component here and what she's been able to develop during her program with SHI during her time in the program and then where she is now with it. Uh, Edis is a young mother of two and uh, but really you know part of the community in Santa Cruz del Dulce. This is a really rural community. Um, there's probably 60 other families that live there and uh, not great access to, to the market, or, you know, it's always a big long bus ride away. And so for SHI's presence in there, a lot of the community members have since turned to, well, big diversified farms, and, and but some of them have taken that to another level and beginning to sell and produce, produce food for uh, commercialization. And Edis is a wonderful example where she's kind of taken this newly established level of food sovereignty and and run with it. So here she is on the left, she's holding a nakatamale, and then on the right, I think she's making some empanadas with some other community members. Uh, and she's turned this into a business. And uh, she's never been a business owner before. She's always had a kind of a knack for baking, but seeing a bunch of new products come in that she's now producing herself, uh, she started to have a surplus and had an idea to 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 make some more money and diversify her income source that might have otherwise been typically from selling maybe coffee or another crop. But now she's able to provide for her two kids. She's able to, um, you know, take them to uh, get the health, uh, the, the, the health checkups that they need on a more regular basis or better school uniforms. I mean, and we're really talking about increased opportunities when we're talking about this access to, to greater or to an increase in livelihood. And I mentioned I'd get back to Alberto Rivera. Uh, he has a really exciting story from La Pedregosa, Panama, and is just typical of so many of the other farmers that we work with. Um, but him and his wife, Feliciana, they have three boys. Uh, they live kind of on the edge of town and they've always struggled with getting anything started, anything to grow. Um, you talk to Feliciana, she says, we basically scratched the dirt for 16 years and couldn't get anything to happen. Um, they signed up for the program really with high hopes of, of making some sort of change, of, of being able to provide for themselves. I think that was it at the very beginning, but it's just totally blossomed. And you can see here, this is a quick view, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, kind of simple terrace farming. You have some live hedges, live barriers in here to help control with erosion. And then he has uh, bok choy that he's cut up and getting ready to, no doubt, a few of these will go to their kitchen table, but the rest will go out to um, the local market. And Alberto has like run with this idea of selling extra produce and establishing himself as, himself as a place to go buy actual produce. Um, and so what never was considered before an extra income source of, of kind of failed attempts at his farm is now the main thing that he does. And if there was a shot of the other side of his farm, you'd see solar dryers, you'd see all these other things that he's 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 really uh, implemented and taken charge of. His boys, he tells these stories of now his boys can, can not only um, can they continue school, but they're going with better materials and they're actually you know going on past sixth grade, which is kind of the mandatory um, or at least up till uh, in Panama where people will go. Um, but in these rural communities, uh, you can often find folks stop, kids stop at that at that um, kind of earlier level of education, but they, they now have the opportunity to continue on their education. So those are the real kind of uh, deeper impacts that you see from some of this work. 
And um, so kind of rounding this out, you know, I mentioned, I think, but previously before, you know, we've worked with 3,000 families, over 3,000 at this time. And, uh, and, and these essentially are becoming climate leaders. These are people that are, have uh, agency in kind of uh, this, this resurgence of energy around taking care of land, around providing for themselves and, and owning and a lot of ownership now and what their farm produces and how they feed their kids and how they will collect their seeds for the next year. That all matters so much and it becomes, it starts with one family and it begins to spread out across community and then community to community, these neighboring communities. And you have regions that begin to operate this way. And you start seeing a really large social movement underway and it's exciting and just uh, totally inspiring. And it starts with families like this here from Honduras. Um, but you know, I, you know that's exciting. And, and I think for SHI, we could continue on, but we also feel like there's a lot to share here. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of knowledge in our 25 years of experience uh, and, and leveraging what each one of these farmers has taught us as an organization. So what is that? What you know, what, what's the role of SHI now as we're kind of pivoting to our next 25 years? And so we're very much, you know, in this moment of celebrating 25 years as an organization, but it's, it's become a kind of an inflection point. Like, well, where is it? Where do we want to go next? And we've been working and kind of tinkering on an idea of scaling our operations uh, with a focus on these, you know, the next five or these other 500 million farmers. And that's not to say we're SHI is uh believes we will get there to all every single uh family um but we'll certainly try and and but we'll do it step by step but and only in partnership with other organizations or entities and but we think that the there's a real crisis happening in terms of the climate crisis and but we also believe that there's a really productive solution here by working with smallholder families and and through um, ecosystem restoration and, and regenerative agriculture techniques. And so we've recently launched a million farm transformation. This is an initiative to, to attach ourselves to the SDGs, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals of 2030, to uh, have an impact on 1 million farms, plant a billion trees, sequester 16 million tons of CO2, to regenerate 8 million acres and to achieve food sovereignty for up to 5 million people. And that might seem wild and, and big numbers, and they certainly are, but it's our new North Star as an organization and where we want to go. Um, we feel like and we, we can have a big impact by sharing our knowledge and working in partnership. I think we're seeing a big, globally speaking, we're seeing a big shift in terms of, of people wanting to, to do things more in a climate-friendly way, whether it's business down to government policies, you know, kind of you name it. I think SHI is uniquely positioned to share where we, where everything that we've done over these years uh, for, for, for improvement in this regard. Um, you know, we've got three pillars and this is, uh, this is rounds up uh, the, this part of the conversation, but we have these three pillars of scale and where we see us growing. So always continuing to do what we do but expanding like this first pillar on the left, we want to expand our core program. So that work and these individuals we saw in, excuse me, in Belize, Honduras, and Panama, work with more neighboring communities with that same core program of multi-year direct technical assistance. Um, but we also think that uh, there's innovations out there that we're excited to apply to our own methodology to see what would work. And so we're kind of in this new era of, of, of creativity and innovation where nothing's going to change for our core program, 
or it might in the future, who knows, but that we want to take these things that we see other organizations doing or literature showing and see, let's try that. Let's, let's create a little bit of a culture of innovation. And so, for example, we're trying, we're, we're piloting a farmer to farmer program as we speak in Honduras, where we train a trainer and the trainer trains other farmers. Um, and that's, that's nothing necessarily new, but it's new to us and how we would work. And so we want to be kind of that, that, um, uh, that creative, that innovative organization. And so that's a way that we be we believe we can scale our operations, kind of lowering that cost out to farmers, but increasing the amount of impact we still have. And then finally, replication. Replication is probably uh, the main one that'll see us get us to our North Star, um, but this envisions SHI as, an, as a you know, kind of smaller uh, nonprofit or an NGO partnering with bigger entities to share our local and our regional expertise in regenerative agriculture, in ec ecosystem restoration with government entities, say the Ministry of Agriculture or larger uh, organizations that might have grants from the government. So uh, we can play, they think there's a really important role for SHI and all this years of experience in, in acting as a local trainer of sorts. Um, and so that's our future. That's exciting. And we're well uh, on our way of trying to figure it out. Um, you never know what will happen in the future, but we've had really positive response to this and, and expanding our model in Panama, for example, innovating our model in uh, or testing an innovation in, in Honduras. And then uh, we have exciting uh, conversations right now with the, with portions of uh, Belize government for, for what we do. So um that's all to say uh, it's we have you know big year right now it's the 25th and to celebrate it today with everybody here on Earth Day is is all the more exciting and I'll just put this last kind of plug if there's any questions I mean here's our website I know Adib uh, will also put it up and I believe it was in the kind of an original um, ads for the the talk but follow us on social media join us um, I'd be more than happy to add my my email please reach out and um, and so, yeah, there we have it. I, I'll hand it back to Arib, and I think we can get into some some good question and answer. Yeah, I can see a lot of them, and we can keep this slide on, so it's a good slide for like if anyone wants to go look for you and want to connect with you. So, a great presentation, Elliot. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I think uh, we will just take ten more minutes of yours because we will be really respectful to your time. Sure. Um, looking at the questions. First thing, uh, how much time do you spend on average with a fam farming family you choose? Five years? Yeah, so up to five years. We've recently, we're beginning to test this down to four years and kind of almost put it as kind of like a university model in that regard. Um, but there's flexibility. Of course, nothing happens perfectly in, in like our field trainer model or field operations model. But we have flexibility between four and five years, but we're really now working with a four-year model. Got it. Okay, this is one question from the, uh, I think this is Aaron. Uh, yeah, sorry. A lot of, uh, I think, links from Alicia. Thank you, Alicia. That was really helpful. We will be looking at that, uh, but I'm looking at questions right now. Okay. Uh, does SHI give certification after the graduation? And uh, can we, the farming family, use it to teach others? In the community uh just to be clear you, the question was about certification is that right yeah certification of like you said like of the graduation and right. is there any regulatory body for that like uh, like which 
they can. Wonderful question, and I would say uh, yes and no. The no part will come first in the sense that the diploma that with the certificate, the certificate that SHI hands out at the end of our core program, at the end of five phases, is not um, an accred- from accredited university. It's from SHI. It's more of a symbol of that transformational journey. No doubt, just as important, but it doesn't come with. Uh, you know, kind of a backing from a local institution or anything like that. It's something that we do. And it's recognition of our program. However, um, people still use that to go on and do many wonderful things. <laughs> uh, and it's no doubt becomes a part of their their education. Maybe it's not the formal part that you know, there's a diploma from a university or something like that. Now, the other side of that is I mentioned we're piloting a test pilot in Honduras a really exciting and impactful part of that pilot is we're partnering with the Honduran Insti- um, Institute for Professional Education, INFOP is what it is, and they're certifying our model to be a trained agronomist or a train in and specific to agroforestry. So what that means is that it's an accredited course they will no doubt go achieve the amount of hours by just nature of us having a long-term approach. And that can then go on a resume and you are, you can go look for another job. Uh, it becomes a workforce development program in a sense. Uh, and that's really exciting for, for SHI and for the individuals going through the, that particular uh, part of, of the certification process. So I think that's going to be, that's kind of a direction of where we're exploring and very much part of our future. Beautiful. Okay, next one is why is slash and burn used in Central America if it isn't sustainable? Is this a newer practice? When did this practice begin? No, 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 it's not new by any means. And uh, not just, you know, just for Central America, but slash and burn has been used for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And it's more kind of related to this kind of milpa style farming where you would slash and burn and so slash cut down everything and then you would rotate with another piece of land or you slash and burn grow there and then you'd move on after kind of you've used up let's say the 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 life of the vitamins and minerals and the soil quality and you'd go through this kind of in a three field circus circuit uh, more or less but um it's still and that you know, it's successful and 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 very important to a lot of local cultures across Central America, and you still see it happening. But where slash and burn becomes, uh, I guess, kind of runs into problems, and what we see as an organization is with overpopulation and land is running out as as communities grow and expand, slash and burn becomes less viable because the available amount of land is not necessary. Is well, it's certainly not the same as it used to be hundreds of years ago, obviously. And so farmers are oftentimes not letting it lie fallow and grow back in this kind of natural sense. When it was in the very beginning of times, it was people were, you know, had the space and the time to let it grow back and regenerate itself. Um, but, you know, in these areas where we work, it's just between kind of protected lands or overpopulation with communities growing. It's not, it's no longer as viable as it used to be. So I'm always kind of careful, I guess I should say, is slash and burn in the instances of, of really highly populated areas for SHI's context is not uh, as sustainable as it once was. Okay, beautiful. And coming to the next one, this one is from Larry. Larry, yeah. How do you, 
have you considered making that training accessible to public via digital course or ebook? Yes. Uh, great question, Larry. And that is very much uh, we're exploring that now um, as we're kind of, you know, in this uh, scaling up approach of digitizing our model or what would it look to have uh, portions or create a course. Um, you know, there's exciting things I think we can do with everything from elementary schools to, excuse me, university programs to uh, even digitalizing a our model from a farmer or from excuse me from a field extension agent to a participant farmer um that is i think that's very much where a lot of the the kind of the energy is going if we're really going to scale at, at higher levels um how can we share this out share information out and make it more readily accessible for folks that might have a cell phone um you know, I'd say that with my own kind of concerns is just how do you control for quality in that regard? And, uh, you know, I'm not the only one I think that has that idea. There's a, that's a, there's big debates out there about that, but um, that's something that we're actively exploring with our own scaling methodology or our own scaling up program. But, you, you know, I think there's there's something to that, Larry, of, of just making this more accessible in a, in a real kind of developed curriculum. Oh, beautiful answer. Okay. Going to the next one. I think you have already answered this, but let go. Let, let's ask it. Uh, do communities, families reach out to SHI, or does SHI identify the communities in need? And the next one, like following it, how do you measure community resilience to climate change and other forces? Uh, great questions. The first one, um, it's a bit of both. Uh, by now, a lot of the communities where we work in have heard of SHI before we are there before there's any sort of institutional presence um and, and that's just kind of word of mouth or people seeing our work from before now it took a while to get there of course of kind of establishing that real institutional rep uh, reputation in an area but we will say we move into a new area a new region or if we move an office let's say uh we would reach out to um communities and uh, local government and say hey this is who we are this is what we do and that's where that conversation happens but we would never go into a community and set up shop or even put on a presentation without being invited in by community leaders or community elders uh, and so it becomes a very much a two-way conversation about our existence in a community or not and then uh if i remember right about measuring uh for community resilience um yeah climate change and other forces Climate change and other forces. That's a great question. And I think, you know, I mentioned there's a rather structured and, and kind of uh, um, what's the uh, the word I'm looking for? Rigid is not right, but that's what I want to say. Uh, there's a rather uh, just a structured monitoring and evaluation component to our work. And um, it follows along the, f the five phases. And so we have we do baseline studies so an entrance baseline and an exit baseline and that helps us evaluate the changes over time so the same questions are asked for somebody entering as they are exiting uh, and we're able to see across those five areas of impact what were the outcomes and how did they change and oftentimes we we come across outcomes that we never anticipated before and so it's uh that's a really interesting aspect is like well what's happened that we might not have under you know thought would happen but all the while, we're also monitoring our work. And so there's semi-annual studies or semi-annual surveys, I should say. So every six months, we do a semi-annual survey. 
of participant farmers. And then at the end of each phase, to make sure everybody's kind of achieving what they've set out to achieve, we do an end of phase evaluation as well. Um, that's all pretty heavy on the quantitative side. So we're, we're definitely, um, we're uh, cognizant of the qualitative side too. So lots of testimonials, interviews, uh, pictures taken and things like that and videos taken. And so that helps us make sure we're capturing uh, both sides of the aspect specific to kind of that community uh, or climate and community resilience. Those areas of, of impact we try to get at with those with uh, the impact areas that we measure. So anywhere from kind of environment to um, all the way to agroforestry and, and leadership development. And we're in this kind of really interesting and exciting process of, of figuring out, well, how else can we attach ourselves to maybe some of the larger, more global monitor standards of the SDGs? So we collect what we collect, and that helps us understand if we're on mission or not. Um, but what are those as they connect to SDG number two, for example, um, or or one of the others? And so we're in this process of looking through that, and, and there's a ton of overlap, but you know, what is there still to measure in terms of living income, in terms of gender uh migration is another big one there's areas i think we want to grow uh in terms of our own measurement of our work perfect okay uh we have less time so i will go with my own two questions <laughs> first one is yeah so first one is uh, how does uh, funding works in shi and do you guys have uh, any commercial partners also Good question. None of this would be possible without significant funding. Um, and that's what a lot of our US office does. Uh, and, you know, in part two, our program offices uh, help, but we are a nonprofit, you know, 501c3 based here in the United States. And so we rely, uh, you know, 100% on fundraising. And for SHI, 25 years of experience, we have lots of really loyal individual donors over the years, and so and that have stayed with us. I think that's really a testament to, to our organization and, 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 and the mission alignment that we, we maintain. But um, right around kind of 80% of our funding of our annual budget, 1.3, 1.4 million dollars is our, comes from individuals. Uh, then we have uh, family foundations make up the the next percentage, uh, fifteen percent of these kind of uh, vacillate obviously over over different years, but these are family foundations um, or just foundations in general that offer multi-year funding, um, more in the terms of well, obviously in the terms of grants. Uh, some of this is restricted to kind of certain aspects of our work. Um, and then finally, the question around corporations. And absolutely, uh, this is an area that we're excited to be growing. And we've had, believe it or not, in the pandemic, uh, a lot of interest from corporations. I think as they're beginning to shift to kind of grow their own ESG uh, uh, areas of, of their business, reach out to us. And so kind of that five, seven percent is uh, comes from of our funding comes from corporate donors. And they can be kind of corporate engagement. They can be straight up donations. Uh, we are really excited to kind of do it all and make it work for whatever corporation is is looking for. Um, I will say we've had, you know, we're always trying to diversify that breakdown, and we've had significant um, 
changes I would, you know, in this past year or two with with increasing our the the foundational support. And that's been exciting for us. And it's helped us really move into this kind of proactive scale up approach is with really good foundational support or foundations, I should say, support. Um, so I will see that it'll kind of it'll begin to balance out a little bit more in the coming years. Wonderful. Okay, last one from my side, and then I think we will uh, wrap it up. Yep. What uh, us as a community, eat community, can help support SHI, and uh, like any parting way, like words from you in, in the end, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, that question obviously comes up quite a bit, and I would say check us out online. Um, just you being here, you know, obviously shows that. Uh, that you have an interest in this work and are excited to learn more, I'd be more than happy to connect with anybody. Like I said, if Ari wants to share my email out, um, but check us out online, uh, consider supporting our work. Uh, we're 100% um, nonprofit fundraised. Uh, all of our funding comes from individuals just like you, and it's not just individuals with deep pockets or big foundations. It's a big percentage is our, our smaller donations, and that just adds up over time. And uh, there's other ways to join and to support as well. Of course, we appreciate uh, funding as much as we can just to continue our work, but um, sharing us with your neighbors uh, and being a part of, you know, we're trying to grow kind of a volunteer side of our, of our organization and how you can be an ambassador of what we do. Um, follow us on any of these links, any of this stuff helps. And I think that's probably connected to a parting word that I have is, um is just that any small bit adds up and it really helps i think shi is a testament as uh to to this you know in 25 years we started extremely small florence reed as our founder in kind of a bedroom of her parents home working with two field trainers in honduras and we've grown immensely since then and now we have extremely loyal um donors loyal supporters we're doing really exciting things across uh, the region and we have fantastic staff and creating really deep impact. And, and the, the model is unique. And so I guess that's the whole point is that this stuff adds up over time. And so any little bit matters. Uh, we, we just actually published a blog today on our website if you wanna check it out, but it's about doing little things. You know, I ride my bike all the time. It's on Earth Day, it's a time to kind of reflect on this stuff. And so uh, any little bit, uh, goes like can go a long distance, especially as we start to create movements and change comes from the, the conversations. Um, so please do uh, join us, and there's many ways to join us financially, of course, but also through social media. Come visit us in our programs across Central America. We also do trips. We're just getting those back online after the pandemic as things are starting to quiet down. Um, but yeah, I, kind of a roundabout answer, but the, the or a roundabout takeaway, I should say that uh, any little bit, uh, you know, there's no, there's no task or, or no activity too insignificant, that it all matters. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I think in the end, people are saying thank you. Thank you for like being on. And as I said, uh, it was an honor and I really appreciate you being here, sir. So I will make sure like we spread this more to our community and even small bits, we can help SHI. So. I think we will wrap it up here. And again, thank you so much. Thank Mark, you so much. Take us away. Thank you for joining. I appreciate it. Bye. Yeah, I had a couple of, couple of things to announce also, like our uh, webinar. Uh, 
these are also available on on YouTube and Facebook Live, and um, all our, our our most of our webinars will be available as podcasts. So this one will be a podcast in in a few days. So we'll oh, send perfect. you the link. Yep. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Hey everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.